Hello, and welcome to Fatal Femmes, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will focus on a mystery, suspense, or thriller written by or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. Today we will be talking about the musical Murder Ballad, with music by Juliana Nash, lyrics by Juliana Nash and Julia Jordan, and book by Julia Jordan. We want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We get in-depth on every aspect of the plot, so if you care about that, go listen to the musical, and then come back. We'll be waiting. To start us off, here is our synopsis. Murder Ballad is the dramatic story of a love triangle gone wrong, centering on Sarah, an uptown girl who seems to have it all, but whose downtown past lingers enticingly and dangerously in front of her. So welcome, everyone, to our fourth episode now. Our fourth episode. We've been around for a whole month. Happy birthday, us. Wow. Well, now, because we post every other week, that's more like two months, right? Oh, yeah. Happy two-month two, anniversary. Two-month anniversary. And to celebrate, we are not alone in our studio today, our glamorous private studio. We have a guest. Guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I am Carl Gonzalez. I am an actor, director, musical theater guy around Austin, Texas. And yes, I am a man on Fatal Femmes. Here at Fatal Femmes, we don't discriminate against men. We do allow them in the building every once in a while. We just want to celebrate our female identifying artists in the mystery genre because they have been overlooked for so many years. Yeah, so tread carefully. Will do. But Carl is also here to celebrate the female-identifying artists in the mystery genre. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Carl, you also are a friend of the podcast in more ways than one. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm actually the one who wrote and recorded the music for the podcast. So that ding, 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 that awesome stuff you hear at the beginning. Yeah, that's me. That sounded like the beginning of Ice Ice Baby. That's what I thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this week we are talking about Murder Ballad, and we wanted to have Carl on because he is our foremost musical expert. He has seen many a Broadway show. He is obsessed with many a Broadway show. He will dissect many a Broadway show. Which, ironically, this musical never appeared on Broadway. I know. So he also extends himself to (laughs) off-Broadway. You lower yourself to take notice of those poor shows that don't ever make it. Yes, that is me. So Murder Ballad, Laura, tell us a little bit about it. A Murder Ballad opened off-Broadway in 2012. It starred as the narrator, Rebecca Naomi Jones. Sarah was played by Karen Olivo. We love. Michael was played by John Ellison Conley. We got it. Who I know nothing about. And Tom was played by Will Swinson, who we also love. Yes, we also we love him. I have been lucky enough to see Will Swinson and Karen Olivo both on Broadway. No, I did see Will Swinson. I saw yeah. him in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. You sure did. And we saw Karen Olivo in West Side Story. And then I saw Karen Olivo in, in The Heights as well. And if Karen Olivo, if you by any chance... Okay, you, we no. are doing that. Okay. <laughs> Were you going to propose to her? No, I was going to say hi. Oh, you can do that. Go ahead. Hi, Karen Olivo, if you listen to this. If that exchange seemed a little bit awkward, it's because Carl and Lacey are married, so she, I guess, is afraid that, I don't know. I don't know that I'm really afraid of anything. I more have our formula down. I don't want to mess it up. <laughs> That's fair. I'm like, okay, this isn't your opportunity to get on open mic night and tell Karen Olivo how much you love her. She already knows. You tweet her like every day, don't True. you? <laughs> okay, and Murder Ballad opened on the West End in 2016, which yep. I had the privilege of seeing. Because Lacey said, while you're in London, you need to go see this play. Yep. And I said, okay, cool, because it has Ramin Karamlu in it. And I was like, yes, he is amazing. I will do this. And it blew my mind. So that production starred as the narrator, Victoria Hamilton Barrett. Sarah was Carrie Ellis. Michael was Norm Bowman. And Tom was Kameen... Uh, Ramin <laughs> Adele Dezine. <laughs> wow, here we go. Ramin Karamlu, who we've actually... Thank you. I've had the pleasure of seeing him several times, actually. Or not several times, I guess twice. Twice, yeah. Yeah, so that's not several. That's a couple times. Um, so 
helicopter carried away. He coined a term called broadgrass, which was taking Broadway show tunes and giving them bluegrass covers. And he toured that show with his band and came to Austin. So we saw him, that's been four or five years ago now, I think. Yeah. And then um, we saw him in Miserab on our honeymoon, actually. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I forgot he was on there. And I didn't leave you for him. That is true. You did not. I didn't know that was an option. Though. I mean, he's married, so I don't know that he... I don't think that was an option, but I'm just saying you're welcome. Thank you. I've only seen him once, but he was really, really nice. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Very nice. On to the the musical itself. The Murder Ballad. So Murder Ballad is a completely sung musical. They might have one or two lines where they say, like, stop or something like that. But overall, (laughs) don't. (laughs) Don't. Oh, no, they sing that too. Yeah, they sing that. Overall, it is completely sung, no speaking or lines. It has the distinction of being one of the few musicals completely written by women. The lyrics, the music, and the book were both written by women, as we said earlier. And we were talking about it before the show started. There's not a lot of shows out there. Actually, are there any other shows that are completely written by women? We established there were quite a few female composers. Yeah. Because we have, like, Janine Tesori, who wrote Ragtime. Lynn Amherst, I believe. We had another one, because we, we were talking about, because it was kind of the Janine Tesori show for a minute, because she has written so many Tony-nominated roles. And then Lynn Amherst. You see, and I think that actually says a lot, because we're having a really hard time even coming up with... Composers. Composers, and then remembering exactly what their names are. So that kind of speaks a lot for, unfortunately, the musical theater world. And we looked up and we found that only there's only been one woman to win one Tony for score, right? There's been a couple because okay. um, Lynn Amherst, if I'm saying that name wrong, I'm sorry, won for Ragtime. And then Janine Tesori won for... Fun Home? Yes. But still, in all the years that they've been giving away Tony Awards, that's, that's not real good yeah. statistics. I'm sure there are more, but I think just the fact that we off the top of our head can't think of any... And I could probably rattle off several male composers and male playwrights that have won for book or best new musical or score. That's what I was trying yeah. to think of. That would be a lot easier job. So Broadway, diversify. Yeah. We'll get more into the lyrics of this musical, but these women, the, the lyrics to this are gorgeous. There is so much imagery in them that I want to see what else they can do. They need to get more exposure, and they need to write more stuff, and it needs to be on Broadway. Murder Ballad (laughs) 2. Escape from Vatican City. (laughs) (laughs) This time it's personal. (laughs) (laughs) I've already written the tagline, guys. All I need is a producer. Meet narrator. Single woman on the (laughs) We rewrite it as a (laughs) rom-com. Oh, my God. Oh my gosh, should we get into the show, y'all? Yeah, let's get into the show. So, how did you first hear about this musical, Carl? I got really bored one night, and uh, Lacey is correct, I do have a huge crush on Karen Olivo, and I was looking up other musicals that she's done, and I saw Murder Ballad. Now, I'm a huge fan of Karen Olivo, Will Swenson, and Rebecca Naomi Jones, and so when I found out that they did an off-Broadway musical together, I started listening to it. And I became a huge fan. See, that's funny because I think we found out about this show separately. I think it was one of those things where maybe you found out about it, listened to it, and we didn't talk about it. Because then I discovered it because I also, huge fan of Karen Olivo, huge fan of Will Swenson, also a huge fan of Casey Levy, who is now currently on Broadway as Elsa in Frozen. She also played the same part as Karen Olivo on the off-Broadway. She, she wasn't on the recording, but she did play that role. I don't know. Did she originate? No, she, she filled the role after yeah. she left. Just found that, and I was thinking, okay, because I saw Will Swinson and Cassie Levy on Broadway in Hair. They played Love Interest. So I thought it was really funny that they were cast again as Love Interest. That's how I discovered it. So as I mentioned earlier, I saw it because Lacey told me to go see it. I had seen Will Swinson in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and Karen Olivo I knew from In the Heights, Mm -hmm. which I didn't get to see her in, but I love the music. So I look at the cast a little different because in my head I keep seeing Carrie Ellis and Norman Bowman and um, the the London cast. Mm -hmm. So whenever I listen to it, even though I know it's not their voices, that's who I'm picturing. Whereas I assume when y'all are listening to it, you're picturing Will Swinson and Karen Olivo. I more picture Casey Levy because that was the first woman in that role that I had heard. And then I found the soundtrack. I would really love it if there were three cast recordings for each one of those casts. I'd listen to all of them. Oh, yeah. 
So let's start at the top. The first song is called Murder Ballad. This song kind of sets the scene because if you are not familiar, murder ballad is actually a subgenre of the ballad genre. And it kind of stems back to the storytelling tradition that has come through. I think all cultures have that tradition. And so it kind of starts there. And as we go on, we get these songs that like talk about you know, someone that was killed and then what happened to the murderer. And it's just kind of used as a cautionary tale. The very first song going in, the actors are not in character yet. They're waiting for the play to begin. The narrator gets up and starts kind of explaining about what you're going to see and why people want to see a murder ballad, why we enjoy that sort of thing. When we were listening to that song on the way over to record this podcast mm -hmm. and there was all these little things that we kept picking out of it places that she talked about and things that were discussed that sets the tone and sets up this everything for this show because they talk about the blue ridge mountain that makes me lean to think that the writers of this musical were kind of harking back to the bluegrass tradition of t a storytelling because there are a lot of songs about dying and people getting murdered in bluegrass music, if you didn't know. They talk about a bunch of different songs where people get killed. Mac the Knife, mm -hmm. Maxwell Silver, Silver Hammer. Hands. Oh, Silver Hands? Is it, what is it, Carl? You actually sang this lip sync this song in a show. Uh, Maxwell Silver Hammer. I always say Silver Hands. No, because she says Mac the, Maxwell Silver Hands are glowing, right? I think that's the lyric in the song, but the song is Maxwell Silver Hammer. And it's a Beatles song. What I find really interesting is a reference to Hendrix calling out Hey Joe. I was going to ask you about that because that was the one song I wasn't familiar with. So do you know that song? That's the one song, Hendrix song, I'm not too familiar with because when I heard it, I just kind of assumed that they were setting up a dirty ball. Like, you know, hey, Hendrix is calling out Hey Joe from like an old jukebox or something. An interesting thing about the two different productions is the off-Broadway production is set in a bar. They literally built a bar and they set the audience up around it. And so the, that's where the whole thing is set. They walk on the bar. They serve drinks. It's a very dirty, gritty atmosphere. The production that I saw in London was in a theater in the back of a coffee shop, which was really interesting. And they had a stage that had two rotating circles in it. So the, there was a circle in the middle that would spin and then a ring around that that would spin. And the show started with the narrator sitting on stage. She was in a trench coat and I think a fedora. And she had her back to the audience and she's smoking a cigarette. And she was on stage for, I'd say, a good half hour before the show started. And then the music starts and she stands up and she starts singing. So it's two very different atmospheres. You have this dirty, gritty bar and then you have this actual like stage setting with this more kind of trench coat detective murder. Noir. Yeah, a, a very noir feel. Jimi Hendrix, the song is called Hey Joe. He's telling Joe that he's going to go shoot his old lady and then he's going to flee to Mexico. So well, I, think, I think this fits <laughs> into murder ballads. So that, yeah. that answers your question about Hey Joe. Yeah. This song includes our clue from last week. There's always a killer, so logically someone, someone has to die. There's also another lyric that I really... We all want to touch the flames but not get burned. I love that. It's just... Well, and I think that speaks to two things, because later on we'll talk about what happens in the musical, and that will make sense. But also why our culture has a fascination with things like murder ballad and things that are ugly and kind of taboo. It's like we all want to experience that thing from a distance, but we don't want it to actually happen to us. So it's like we want to see this mess play out, but we don't want this mess to happen to us. There's another lyric in one of my favorite songs later on that kind of says the same thing mm -hmm. that we'll get to later. Yeah. We've set the stage. All four characters sing this amazing, wonderful song. There's always a killer, so logically someone has to die. So we know exactly what's going to happen. Yep, the so stage is set. Someone's dying. We go into our story. We start, so there's a lot of songs called Narrator 1, Narrator 2, Prattle 1, Prattle 2, Reprise, Reprise. So we're in this part where the narrator is telling us the story. And it starts off this story about Sarah and Tom. And they're this young couple. They're kind of like grungy, gritty kids that living in New York. They tend bar. They want to be famous musicians and actors. And they wear each other's clothes. And they cut each other's hair. And it's just kind of like this very youthful thing that young people do. I never did anything like that. Ugh, I thought, 
I don't. Did we do that? Because I mean, Carl was in a band for a while, and I would go to all of his shows, like yeah. two o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, because that makes sense. You knew people who lived in garages and slept on dirty mattresses and stuff. Oh, oh yeah. technically, we had someone who lived in our garage. Yeah. So Sarah and Tom are just in that good stage of youth and just living their life and probably full of passion and all of that crazy stuff. It's very obvious that Sarah is completely infatuated with Tom. She has this line about, you're brighter than the sun. I revolve around you. You're the only one. I belong to you. And then I think the narrator says they're together for a few years or so. The fantasy starts to kind of fade. And Tom is telling Sarah, like, do you really just want to be are you going to wake up one day and regret this and think, you know, oh, my life has passed me by? Because I think that's him kind of transferring his feelings onto Sarah, but I think he's feeling that way. And they have this on again, off again. Volatile, tumultuous thing. They're together, they're not together until they really are not together. And they say some very hurtful things, especially Tom. And then they both talk about how they're drunk again, and she says... She has a line where she says, I'll abuse myself to amuse myself, and he says... Well, that's moving into the second song between the oh. narrations. You have a song called I Love New York. And oh, that's, that's right. pretty much Sarah and Tom getting together, breaking up, getting together, breaking up, and finally breaking up, and kind of talking about just all the terrible things they're doing to each other and themselves, because no one is very healthy at this stage in the, in the stage of the game. No. It's like, we're just kind of generally wild. They're stumbling around drunk. Sarah bumps into Michael, and it says, Mr. PhD in poetry, walking home from NYU. And that she's all sass and gin. So he's, like, trying to talk to her, and she's basically only interested in getting laid. She's like, are you going to kiss me? Is anyone going to kiss me? He says, you didn't ask my name. She said, I don't care, kiss me. Which we all know when she says kiss me. She means something. There was a funny bit in the um, West End production where she's throwing up into this bucket and then she <laughs> looks up at him and she goes, aren't you going to kiss me? <laughs> but basically, because we established in the beginning that Tom is kind of a jerk, very much about himself. He wants to play the field. There's a line where he says, New York's got millions of women for me to lose myself in, basically saying, I don't need you. I can go find a million women, dime a dozen. Bye. Michael is very much opposite. He is interested. He wants to get to know her. He isn't interested in sleeping. Well, I'm sure he is, but that's not his goal. He's trying to establish why she's behaving the way she's behaving, why she's acting out like that. They have this banter back and forth. I think he tries to be funny, doesn't really work, and eventually it kind of breaks down to the fact that Sarah is hurting. Because she's hurting, she is not taking care of herself, and she's putting herself in situations to hurt herself. Because I think she wants to be numbed. Well, she's talking about she abuses herself to amuse herself. That's one of the lines, I'll abuse myself to amuse myself. So I think it's very much like she's tired of feeling she's hurt, so she's trying not to feel, so she's numbing herself with drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever. It isn't about anything deeper than that. Then that leads into the next song, Little by Little, which she's like, little by little, I see what's happening, I see what you're doing, your heart's broken. They kind of discover that, and she has this moment of vulnerability with him. Can I ask you a question about that song? Yeah. So, does Michael seem a little belittling in the song? We were actually discussing that. At first, I think we both thought that. But then I was like, is he trying to be funny? Because like, if he's if he's an academic, yeah, maybe his sense of humor is different, or maybe he is being belittling because he's like he feels a certain type of way about himself. Because honestly, it sounds like lyrics that a man would write to try to impress a woman, but a woman wrote it. So I'm wondering what the intention was behind it. See, it always made me feel a bit wonky, but I kind of had it in my mind that Michael was, like, the good guy. But as I've been listening to this, I've started to question whether he is or not. And so that then made me think about this song. And it seemed to me that he was kind of putting her down and making fun of her. What's what's the exact lyric? What were the ones that you were thinking of? Is your heart broken? Did De Niro get away? Didn't Mama ever tell you bad boys, they don't stay? There yes. Because yeah. I didn't know if that was his attempt to try and be funny, but then I'm thinking that's not really funny. I don't know who would think that was funny, because then his line of question kind of becomes different. He's like, well, well, what was his name? Tom. Well, he sounds like an asshole. All men are assholes. And the conversation kind of changes from that point on, because he makes kind of that little dig. I, it doesn't go over well. And then the line of questioning changes, and I feel like he softens a little bit and lets her kind of take the lead. 
But he's already shown his true colors because I think her response to all men are assholes is back at him like, hey, look, you're an asshole too. Look what you just said to me. Yeah, and he goes, nice to meet you, Sarah. I'm Michael. And then she says, shut up and kiss me, Michael. So she still doesn't care about him as a person. Right, yeah, and then we that leads into troubled mind slash promises, and she's talking about, you know, I, I see where promises go. I love that song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speak on it. It conveys such hurt, and it makes me wonder about what her life was like before all of this. What she was like as a kid. Was there a lot of pain and hurt in her life before Tom, or is this song just directed at that relationship? I think it speaks to women as well. You don't have to be very old as a woman to experience what can happen, what men are capable of. Yeah. So it's like it may not have just been the one relationship. She may this may have happened several times and it's just tiring. It's exhausting to just keep dealing with it over and over. That's interesting because I always thought it was just about Tom, but you bringing up that idea and I'm like, well, no, the story starts off with what happened between Sarah and Tom, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is something that Sarah has gone through beforehand or something. I, I just didn't think about that. Because her line is, don't make me a promise. People take those away. Yep. And to me, it, I think one breakup can be that traumatic. So it's very possible this could just be about that breakup. But also a lot of times it takes some people to get to the point where she's at. It can take several relationships. So I can't speak on what that is, but it does bring up ideas for me. Just something to think about, something the actor would have to think about. Yeah, and once she starts letting her guard down, you see him kind of change his tune a little bit. (laughs) It's a musical. The way he's he's speaking to her softens because he's like, I don't want anything from you. I have my own baggage. I have my own stuff. Which we never find out what that is either. Yeah, we don't figure out any of that from him. It's just like he's like, I've got my own story. I don't want to bore you. I'm just, we're just going to stay the night together. Nothing's going to happen. I'm just going to be here with you. And then we'll go our separate ways. Which I think is really interesting because it leads to narrator three and turning into beautiful. To me, it kind of shows that this musical was written by a woman because very well we could have gone into... Michael's backstory about how he was hurt too but no it is truly Sarah's story and all you need to know is that Michael has baggage too is it important to the story on what it is probably not yeah it keeps it keeps the story focused on Sarah one thing that I noticed listening through it this time around and I've listened to this so many times but new things keep popping out at me is how much in this musical people try to put themselves into other people mm-hmm. Sarah says I belong to you. In the song Turning Into Beautiful, they say, if I were you and you were me, what would be the difference? Which, I'm sorry, to me doesn't seem like a very healthy way to live. And then later on in the musical, Tom refers to that he belongs to Sarah and that Sarah belongs to him. Very extreme. (laughs) There's another line in one of the later songs that we'll get into a little bit later that also emphasizes this point. So that's something to keep in mind when you're listening to this is how much people try to intertwine themselves and they're not focused on being their own person. Yeah, they they try to attach themselves to someone else without working on themselves first or addressing the issue that they have. It's like, as long as I'm with this person, I'll be okay. And that never really works. So we go into turning into beautiful. And this part in the musical is the happy time. And this is really, I think this shows really well how many kind of genres they sample or they bring into this musical because it's a rock musical. But this one feels very, it's very much a lively, peppy, I I can't think of the band, but it very much reminds me of like a 90s alt rock kind of feel. I totally think Matchbox 20 when I listen to that song. Thank you. Yeah, it's very centered around the first major chord. It's actually quite a departure from all of the songs because the rest of the songs are always centered around a minor chord, which tends to be really more dark and sad or never really resolves like little by little. It just kind of keeps on going and really doesn't resolve itself until, honestly, the next song, Trouble Minds and Promises. Turning into Beautiful really kind of follows a true formula of verse, chorus, verse, chorus. So. It, it's the one song that I hear out of all of these that I feel could be on the radio. It feels very accessible. Poppy in a way. Yeah, poppy, accessible. But this is the happy point of the musical because Michael and Sarah have fallen in love. They are getting married, or they have gotten married, one of the two. Um, they're going to have a baby. 
they have a new apartment in a really nice area in New York, things are turning into beautiful. Very much the happiest point of those first three. Yeah, it definitely is. But that there is that line, if I were you and you were me, what would be the difference? Which is not healthy. Yeah. Because <laughs> you should be individuals. And that resolves into crying scene theme, which is a yeah. very slow kind of sad sounding. Well, because it's kind of like the transition from the focus on Sarah. And now we're moving to hear Tom's story because they're talking about six blocks uptown or six miles uptown or downtown. Tom's still kicking around, waiting bar, but the the fame thing didn't work out. And I also love the line in here that says, some get all, some get nothing, but everyone wants more. Yep. (gasps) Guilt for longing. This will make sense later. And so then we get the I Love New York reprise where Tom's talking about he's never going to fall in love again. He's doing good on his own. Well, he's going to tin bar in the right places, make the right connections, and he is going to throw himself into business, into his work. And he is not going to waste time on on the women, any of them. And then we get Prattle One, which this is where they're singing about Frankie's birthdays, right? Yeah, they get married, the baby comes, it's a little girl, kind of goes through the first five years of her life very quickly. She's one, and you're so cool, and then two, oh crap, she's out of a crib. She And then now she's three, she's four, she's five, she's breaking all of our electronics. And then it goes into them talking about Frankie going to school. This leads me to believe that Sarah's been a stay-at-home mom because they're talking about school and she's like, next year she'll be at public school. I can't remember what which one it is, like PS180 or something. And Michael is like, oh, no, she is going to private school. It is it is so important. You don't understand how important education is, which we've talked about feels very belittling to Sarah once again because it makes it seem like she doesn't understand how important education is. Like, how could she even think that she would go to public school? Yeah, and then he starts singing about 401ks and tax stuff. And this just kind of drones on and on in the background. Yeah, and she's there going, please hear me. Slow down. Stop. Let's just enjoy this. And he's already taken off thinking about all of these things and planning out the rest of their their lives. Which also makes me again wonder about her background. Mm -hmm. Does she not have an education? What happened there? And so this is... This is when you start to see a divide. Yeah, because talking about connecting to people. So both Michael and Sarah throw themselves into being parents. They focus all of their energy on Frankie, whether it's playing with her, her going to school, prepping her for school, whatever. They both become fully parents and I think kind of forget to be spouses. The priority is Frankie, which obviously that's what it should be, but they kind of forget to prioritize themselves and each other. We get to Coffee's On, and this is one of Sarah's ballads. And she's talking about hearing Michael and Frankie in the kitchen, and they're laughing, and she wants to get out of bed, but she's thinking about how useless she feels now because her daughter's going to school, and she doesn't know who she's going to be because that is all her identity has been for five years. I think it leans to say that she's probably in some sort of depression because it talks about her just wanting to stay in bed all day. Yeah, she's definitely depressed, and she's talking about pushing the thoughts away, which anybody who's been depressed knows that that doesn't work. They follow you. (laughs) Yeah, it might work for a little bit to get you through a little part, but then they come back on, and it's worse, and it's worse every time. Yeah, that's another prattle. I love that. Prattle's a fun word. We should work that into an everyday conversation. I think this kind of next prattle, it's called prattle number two, shows Michael is really losing his patience with Sarah because obviously she is going through kind of an identity crisis because she doesn't really know who she is now that her daughter's in school and she doesn't have to take care of her all She has, you know, a six-hour break or whatever every day. Because she has that line, who will I be from nine to three? Yeah, I think that's resulting in her not really pulling her weight in a way she's not quite all there and because it's like anyone that has ever been depressed knows it's like you know you have responsibility and things to do but sometimes it's just it's all you can do to get out of bed or brush your teeth she's not really fulfilling her end of the deal in michael's eyes so 
you can really feel the tension and the aggravation he has. They're trying to figure out how to get Frankie to school. And she's like, okay, well, if we leave now and this and this, but it's going to be hell getting a cab. And he wants her to get Frankie to school and she's going to be late. And he's very aggravated about that. And just running her, it's like, please don't forget these things. Stop forgetting these things. Can you just get this one thing right, pretty much? And so she's trying to get... Frankie to school. And while she's out, she sees a guy that she thinks is Tom. And she goes, oh no, he's too short. So this leads her to... Reminiscing. She looks up the number for the bar and she calls. Because now he owns a bar, a very successful bar. She, They're going to go meet. Mm-hmm. And he has this great ballad called Sarah. Yeah. Talking about the one that got away and how he knows that she's not coming back to him. But if she did, he would in a second come you know, yeah. come right back to her. I don't know if this is the right artist to associate the song with, but it reminds me kind of James, it's kind of James Taylor. It just, it's one of those um, songs, or what's, who's the artist that sings, Eric Clapton, that sings Layla. Yeah. It kind of is that, that great tradition of having the song named after a woman and you're singing about the woman and it's all these things you want to say to her and tell her how she makes you feel. And this is also when we learn how long it's been since they've seen each other because he said that, um, she'll walk back in that door, the one she slammed 10 years before. Oh, so it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years since they've seen each other. So Michael and Sarah, had a, they dated for a while before they moved in together. And well, because we don't know how, how long, long from the time that she broke up with Tom that she met Michael. Oh, true. True. Yeah, it really doesn't fill in the gaps for, the, for that at all, but I don't think that's what's important. No, it's not necessary. So, yeah, so he has this beautiful song about Sarah and they're both reminiscing and feeling very nostalgic. They meet up. One thing leads to another. They kiss. Oh, my gosh. Which leads into one of my favorite songs of the entire musical, Mouth Tattoo. Which, that terminology for me with the lyrics of the song is so cool. I think I just love the wording because it's like a kiss like a mouth tattoo. It's branded on her. She remembers it. Because it it's a part of her. It's a part of who she was. What do y'all think about, we get to Mouth Tattoo, almost every song, except for, say, Turning Into Beautiful, has a constant same tune to it. Do you realize that? It's those chords. The it, guitar chords. It, it's the guitar chords. It's the same feel. It's the same chord structure. And then, out of nowhere, comes Mouth Tattoo. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to why she decided to do that because it's very Sondheim-y to use the same tune over and over again, to use reprises or reprises over and over again, to possibly reinstate points, but it seems like, especially with the narrator, I don't know, it's almost like all one song with the narrator just broken up. Like I guess really if the narrator is telling the story... That's like her, her format. Yeah, maybe I answered my own question, I guess. No, that's fine. That's a that's a great point. I never noticed that before, but yeah, it's the narrator is the through line, and it's punctuated by these things. Absolutely. You, you look at the song list, and it's, you know, prattle, coffee's on, prattle, narrator, narrator seven, narrator eight, and then every once in a while you'll get a song with a completely different title. Mouth tattoo is yeah. one of those. So it's like it makes that stand out even more. I wonder if we took all the narrator's parts, like narrator six, narrator seven, and put them all together, if it would make like almost one kind of feasible song. That would be interesting. Yeah. Well, because you look at it's like look at the format, because you'll have a prattle, a song, a prattle, a narrator. So it's like you have them, they're in the story, telling the story. They'll have a song, and then the narrator will come and be the through line, like you said, and kind of push the story forward. So you have a scene that's still sung, but it's a scene, a song, narrator pushing it through. I never would have noticed that without looking at the song list. We come down and we have Sugar Cubes and Rock Salt, which is, I think, Michael's song about kind of realizing he's not. Yeah, because he has lyrics in there where he says, let me count the ways I love her and then I'll count the ways I don't. I would do anything for her except for what I won't. So I think he's kind of realizing maybe he's not pulling his weight either. Yeah, and then he also says, um, I can say anything to her except for what I don't. I don't know why I don't. Yeah. And then he says, there'll be another day. There's always another day. Which, never put off telling people stuff that you want to tell them, because there may not be another day. The moral of this episode is tell those around you that you love them that you love them. Thanks for listening. Because there's always a killer, and logically someone has to die. And it may be you. The end.
Wow, I love us. <laughs> so going back to mouth tattoo. So this ends. This is a beautiful song. At the end, Sarah and Tom rekindle the romance, and they have this illicit affair. It's carrying on, carrying on. Michael starts seeing changes in Sarah, which leads to Sugar Cubes and Rock Salt, which is this other song that, he, like we just mentioned, he kind of starts making realizations about himself that maybe he's not doing everything he needs to do because Sarah is changing and he's seeing her change. He just doesn't know she's having an affair. So I'm trying to remember Prattle 3. I can't really remember what that's happening, but my name is Tom and Sarah, like in the midst of their affair. And that's a beautiful song, too. Yeah, that has one of my favorite lines. How does it go? It says, I never knew a sound could ease my pain till I heard you speak my name. Yeah. Yeah, that, Such that is a, a good line. line right there. Like, the lyrics in this are so good. So good. They get right to the point. They cut right to the core. And so we're seeing that, well, I don't know if they needed it, but this has done something for both of them. Yeah, well... Th- Well, I mean, it's like at the beginning of, it's kind of like when you start dating in the beginning, you're kind of in this quote-unquote honeymoon phase. So it's like they've rekindled this romance that, because both of them were missing something that the other one had. Sarah had family and the home life. Tom has this very exciting life with business and clubs. And so she was kind of missing the excitement and he was missing the stability. And now they're kind of getting that from each other and they're high off of it almost. Yeah. And so they're in the midst of this affair. They're feeling good. That's It's a great song. It's a great love song, even though the circumstances aren't great. So we go into the crying scene. This is it, right? Where she talks about putting, greasing up the lens and, and getting the French director. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I love this one. What do you think this song's purpose is in the musical? The crying scene. I think it shows how things are going to fall apart. Yeah, because it's kind of, it's going well, but it's faded. Because... All affairs typically are. Like, they'll have a, a point where they're so, so-called so good, but then eventually something has to happen. I think it's also interesting because the more I'm looking ahead and the more I'm looking behind here, the music itself is getting more and more aggressive. There's a line that I love in this song where she says, Tears look so damn beautiful up there on the screen, but no one thinks they're beautiful in a real life crying scene. And it's true, you know, in the movies you see people crying and it's so pretty and mm. so much emotion and you're like, oh, I want that. But Or, oh, that's, that's amazing. That's art. Yeah, but when you're really in that heartbreak place and you're crying your eyes out, you want to be anywhere but in yeah. that There's place. nothing pretty or artistic or romantic about it. It's 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 hell. brutal and disgusting and there's snot. But that's why the poets and the writers and everyone and the artists all have the subject of love because it's so brutal and can be so fantastic. There's also a line in the crying scene, it's so sophisticated, this great, no right or wrong. Because they're they're happy. They're in this kind of euphoric state of this affair, but it's wrong, but it feels right. Very French. <laughs> <laughs> then we move on to coffee reprise, which is where Michael says, oh, hey, I'm not going to go to work today. You know, we need some time. I'll call out and you and me have the day together, which can't happen because she has a meeting with Tom. Well, Michael's starting to realize something's up, so he's trying to make an effort, and she's really not interested at this point. Yeah, I mean, things are going good for her. There is a line that the narrator says, sleep with one in the daytime and lay with one all night. Yep. So, I mean, she's got the best of both worlds at the moment. Well, I don't think, yeah, I don't think she's thinking about the future or the past. She's just in the moment, and she probably, almost she feels alive, but she's, she's probably feeling better than she's felt in a long time because she kind of has something to do besides be a mom. And, and she has someone paying attention to her. And this leads us into Built for Long Game. Which is by far my favorite, my favorite song in the whole play. Easy, yeah. What do you think it means? Well, don't ask how long we're built for long game. So it's like we always want something. We're always going to want for something. We're always going to want something better. We're going to get that, and then we're going to want something else. The grass is always greener. Yeah, and I think, and but then there's the line, it's like, Start again, my life brand new. The life I used to come home to. The life I used to not be satisfied with, with now is what I want. So it's kind of like stop wishing for more and be content in the moment. 
I, I feel like that's kind of what it's trying to be. Yeah, and it's really hard because this song really, really gets it right to where you, as humans, we're never satisfied. We always want something more. We always want, you know, a better relationship, better job, more money. It doesn't matter what you have. You want more, you want more, you want more. And I think, especially with this song, it really reflects almost negatively on every character that it doesn't matter how good you have it or if you think you have it good. If there's one part in your life that you're not satisfied with, all of a sudden your world is ruined. Yeah. And it's actually even reflected with the narrator and Michael's harmonies. Because if you look at the harmonies, you have the melody. And then you have the harmonies, which are technically, it's a minor harmony, which means that it's a lot more aggressive and it fights against what the melody is supposed to do. And it's really... Like kind of against the grain. Yeah, against the grain. And it makes it to where if you separate, I wish we had a keyboard in here, (laughs) um, if you separate the melody and the harmony... You're going to listen to the harmony and think, wow, this is actually a little dirty in a way. And it's a little... Well, it feels very somber. Like when you separate, because we have, because of course we've learned the harmonies. Because how are we going to sing the songs if you don't know the harmonies? <laughs> right. And so you take the melody and the melody itself sounds somber, but then you bring in those harmonies and it's just this, it's another level of just, it feels very, very somber. Yeah. You almost can't sing the harmony without the melody mm-hmm. and it sound right. Sometimes you can with a lot of music, but not with this song, I found. It also ties back to the line that the narrator had earlier that said, some get all, some get nothing, but everyone wants more. And this is also in the song, I think, where Sarah starts kind of waking up. And she's like, oh, wait, I have a husband. I have a daughter. I have this whole life. And they kind of, in a way, reconcile, even though Michael doesn't know that they're reconciling. (laughs) But Sarah's reconciling it. That goes into Sarah's breaking up with Tommy. Because they're together, and Frankie gets sick. And Michael's like, where are you? Your daughter is sick. The school can't get a hold of her. Michael can't get a hold of her. Because she's with Tom. She's with Tom, and he took her phone away. Yeah, because wasn't... Yeah, she's breaking up with him, and he's saying, no, you belong to me. Oh, yeah, because that leads into You Belong to Me, which is really a cool song. It's like a cool, like, gritty rock song, but it is disturbing when you put it into context. It's interesting because we watched a clip that was filmed as, like, a promo for the off-Broadway show, and in that, it looks more like he's coming undone. He's like, you can't leave me. I need you. But when I listen to the cast recording, it comes across as he's just trying to control her. Possess her. Yeah. And how, how was it on the West End? Do how you did remember? He, how did he play? He was very, very aggressive. He was just like, you belong to me. Yeah. Um, See, that's what I appreciate about Wolf's one sentiment in there about just for a second is because he's able to take that and it can feel like to you, it feels very toxic, mass or toxically masculine. Toxically? Sure. sure. thanks i love support so it feels like that but and it still is that but he takes it to another level he finds that next layer which is he's feeling this way because he literally feels like he's losing a part of himself he's losing that thing that he wants if sarah goes so it's like he's coming undone so he's grasping at her to keep her there it's almost like if someone took a toy away from a child yeah or something or a security blanket yeah Like, you belong to me. I'm not going to let you go. And, like, he's going to do whatever he has to do to keep it. All this boils down to, I don't think he's really viewing Sarah as her own person. He's viewing Sarah as what she does for him. Yeah. It's very selfish. You see, this is the part of the musical where I I don't get confused on what everything is called because it starts really blending together. (laughs) Because these songs are turning into, like, oh, this is a 45-second song. Yeah, these are... These all kind of come together because basically all you need to know is they end up at the playground. It's Michael, Sarah, and Frankie, and they're playing at the playground, and Tom, in all of his undoneness, is following Sarah, stalking her, and he has this really creepy but amazing – it starts off a cappella called I'll Be There. It's like, what? I'll be there. And it's so creepy. I don't remember the exact lyrics, but it – really makes you feel uneasy so he approaches michael and sarah and is again very creepy 
to Michael and is like, hey, stop by the bar and I'll tell you some stuff about me and your wife. <laughs> Which goes over. Please as tell me they said that exactly like you just did it. And he's like, I could tell you some stuff. Like, and he like does something creepy. Yeah. I can't remember. But basically that goes over like a lead balloon. About as well as you'd expect it to. Michael figures it out. Because this whole time that Tom's over there talking to them, Sarah's acting really weird. Tom's commenting on how weird Sarah's acting. I think Michael comments on how weird Sarah's acting. Michael and Tom square off. The whole story is coming to a head. And Michael has the little by little reprise or reprise. How do we say that? Reprise? I think or it's reprise, technically. Reprise. I don't know. We've said it every week for right. the summer. But this is one of, performance-wise, my favorite performances because it's taking this very fun, flirty sweet song that kind of starts their relationship and it's kind of starting to feel like the undoing of their relationship because Michael who's been the voice of reason level-headed throughout this entire thing loses it and he is scream rock singing this song and it is very powerful to listen to like I feel bad for Michael but I'm like the song's actually a little like violent almost towards Sarah it's very aggressive it's like both of these men have possession issues with women they need to work that out because they both feel like they belong she belongs to them and he's going don't speak don't talk to me don't you dare cry say goodbye to your daughter and he is just laying into her terribly but then when she doesn't say anything he goes oh tomcat got your tongue so he's berating her not to say anything and then he berates her for doing exactly what he told her to do. Yeah, nothing's going to make him happy at this point. Mm-hmm. Which, taking this out of context, it's like when when someone does find out their partner's cheating, you are not reacting rationally. So I get that. But he goes to a really, like, cutting, deep level. None of these people are great. <laughs> I think all of these people have issues that they need to work out separately. Yeah. So, yeah. So he storms off. His last line is, go ahead, now cry. He's going to take Frankie to her grandmother's house. I'm not sure at this point that Sarah knows what's going to happen, but this leads in to the You Belong to Me reprise. Which is like, besides Bill Prolonging, I think is my favorite part of the musical because of how... It's pure anger because everyone's angry for a different reason. Everyone's out for blood. Everyone wants someone else to suffer. Because I've never seen it, I'm really imagining how they how they staged it a little bit. Because Michael's heading to the club. He's going to confront Tom. Sarah's heading to the club. She wants to confront Tom. I don't think Michael and Sarah have really, because, I mean, they're not on the best terms at at this moment. So I don't think they've communicated to each other that they're going to go confront Tom. So they both are headed there. Tom wants Michael's head on a platter. So when you say confront, is it safe to say, like, no, they're going to literally go and kill Tom? Well, yeah, because he goes, I want to watch him bleed. Michael says that. But separately, they're not going together to do it. Yeah. And Tom must have messed up if he has two people who haven't talked to each other out to kill him. Well, Michael wants to kill him because he slept with his wife. Sarah wants to kill him because he showed up where her kid was. And so she's going into the protector mode of, you you mess with me in front of my kid. Yeah. Laura, how did they do the narrator during this part? Because I have how I would direct it, but how did they... Same, I do too. I don't remember, honestly. I remember the scene when they're singing about him um, bleeding. The person singing would step forward and kind of do their thing, and the, the screen behind which you didn't realize was a screen before, but um, it turned blue, and then every time they talked about him bleeding or, like, hitting or punching or something, then it would be, like, splatters of red up behind him. So it was very visceral and very, like, oh, geez, like, his blood is everywhere. That's so funny, the difference between, like, theater in the States and UK, because I feel like an audience in the U.S. might find that a little cheesy. It was in some ways, but they were so intense, and the music, yeah, builds so much in that that it was just kind of like somebody was like kind of beating on you while you were watching like it. It's almost like up. if it wasn't like the perfect combination of actors and staging that it would have been cheesy. Right. Because see, that's what the UK has over us is I think they have probably better actors. Oh, definitely. And, but their, their design maybe is a little – I'm not saying it's cheesy. It's just a little bit different than what typically America approaches it, a little bit more gritty, grungy, yeah. dirty – and it sounds to me like they were really going literal. We're going to see some blood, y'all. So it was it was one of those scenes that, you know, really made an impact on me. Like, I can still 
while we're talking about it, I can still feel how I felt while I was watching that. And just kind of like the guts clenching inside, like, Mom and Dad what's going to happen? Well, no, I'm because I'm literally thinking, like, you know, you have Sarah, Tom, Michael doing their thing. And because the narrator the whole time is still kind of on stage performing, her giving, like, a Gwen Stefani don't speak vibe to where she's literally, like, almost throwing the mic to the ground, yelling at it, like, a full, like, concert performance. I don't know why. I, I, I feel I like know. she's... I feel like she's just taking the scene. I don't even feel like she's on stage because in the New York version, the off-Broadway, it's the set is set up amongst the audience. So the audience is set amongst the, the set. So I feel like she's somewhere taking this all in and watching. Does that make sense? Because she's in it. She's there. But I feel like she's not off to the side, but kind of off to the side. And she's watching them. Is this the part where she says that she was quiet like a mouse? That is a little bit down. Okay. I think that's crying scene reprise. I think that's the next song. So I feel, I don't know how it's staged, but I feel like I would stage it as her kind of, not as a spectator, but she's not part of it yet. She's still just the the storyteller. So she's watching it as the storyteller, like waiting for her turn to talk and almost observing them like what they're doing and how how this story is dissolving and how the characters are coming into place for the big finish. But I also think that it's important to say at this point, because I don't know when, but at a certain point, I think during the I Love New York reprise, the narrator starts deteriorating. She's getting drunk, and she's she's not quite on her game, because in the beginning she's very calm, cool, collected, and then she starts kind of falling apart. And that's not really explained. It's kind of just like she's getting drunk, and she gets a little drunker and drunker and drunker. That's in the, the stage directions. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Because I don't think the narrator got drunk in the West End production. Yeah, it sounds like they kind of did their own thing, which kudos. Because right. the stage directions for this book, it's like you have a show. You get the script, and you pretty much know what you need to do. Which is nice, because then you know what you can build from. But they lay it all out. Uh, so like, have, ideally, you wouldn't have to even have your own ideas for the show. Yeah, you would just stage it for your whatever your set constraints are. Interesting. Yeah, because okay. they even give motivation for what they're doing during breaks in the music. Wow. At least it did in the beginning. I only have read, like, the first few songs, but it's talking about, like, during I Love New York, the first one, how it's like they're getting back together. They're doing something that signifies that they're getting together, they're breaking up. So just to show that, like, they're kissing and they're slapping each other, they're pushing each other away. So And it says that in the book. So you don't have to think about that, which is... Nice on one hand because you can kind of build on it or take it in a different direction because you know what it's supposed to feel like. But also it's kind of taking out the fun of deciphering it for yourself. So narrator, so crying scene reprise and narrator 11. I believe that's when we find out that the narrator was there the night that whatever murder had taken place because we still don't know who's getting killed. We know that Michael and Sarah are headed to the bar. We know Tom's at the bar. Everyone's mad. Everyone wants blood. And then we find out that she worked at the bar. So yeah, in the West End production, she took off her trench coat and her hat and tied a um, half apron around her waist. Oh, I love that. That's cool. And it was really confusing to me because I thought, oh, maybe they didn't want to cast another person to play this part. <laughs> I didn't. Right. I didn't realize that she was now in it. Yeah, you're like, oh, narrator's part of the. So we have walk away promises prom or promises reprise, and this is between Sarah and Michael. What's happened right before this is Michael's about to kill Tom, and Sarah's going kill him. It looks like we know how it's going to end up, but then Michael doesn't do it. He stops himself, and Sarah and Michael have this very painful, uncomfortable, but ultimately a reconciliation. It seems like they reconcile, but I don't feel like it's a one hundred percent thing. I don't think they know either. I just think they know that they're not ready to be done. So they're going to try to work it out. But I don't know, again, if it's a healthy thing or if they're just trying to hold on I think there's a di- there's a different feel to this for me. So I feel like it's kind of an acknowledgement from Michael, like, look, none of this is okay, but I know that some of the things that I was doing wasn't helping. And it's definitely an acknowledgement from Sarah that she messed up. So I don't know that they know what's going to happen, 
if it is reconciled or if they're going to break up, but I think that they both are going to try to save the relationship it reminds for their me, daughter. Yeah, it reminds me of that moment in Follies. Uh, Follies is a Stephen Sondheim musical at the end when I forget which two characters, Ben and Sally, Sally decide to reconcile, and they're basically like, look, this will be the hardest thing we've ever done. And you don't know what happens, but they're going forward. It's a. I think it's a. Cool. I don't think it's Ben. I think it's the other dude, but I can't remember his name. But it is Sally. I think Ben's the other one. Yeah, it's not Ben. Um, Buddy. 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 There we go. Danny Burstein. Yep. That's who played him when we saw it on Broadway. Sorry, I realized I referenced Sondheim like three times. And <laughs> oh, did you? That's good. I think that's good for you. I think we're well under your Sondheim referencing limits. Right. <laughs> so clubs and diamonds slash prattle six. Here is where. The truth unfolds. So Sarah and Michael have had this tense kind of reconciliation, and they leave. They leave the bar together. So Tom's left alone. And the narrator steps up, and she starts singing. I mopped his floors. I loved him. And he looked at me and said, I'm sorry, I never loved you. And you realize, because they reference a few times that Tom has a girlfriend, but she's not really mentioned that much. It doesn't really seem like she's that important. This is where you figure out that the narrator is the girlfriend. And she says, I'm not erasable. And that's, and she starts telling you, she confesses her crime. She grabs the club from behind the bar and swings it and hits it in the head and hits it again and hits it again and hits it again and again and again and again and again. And she says, you don't know what you would do until someone erases you. It's very much a woman pushed to the breaking point. And she was completely in love because it it talks about how much that she loved him more than he knew. But she also says that she belonged to him and he belonged to her. Again, unhealthy expectations. So she's the most stable one in the musical, obviously. Well, I mean, she did have the composure to narrate the whole thing. Sure. Yeah. And she got away with it. Yeah. (laughs) Because the very last thing you see is I believe it's Michael and Sarah. And they're in the kitchen of their home. Granted, this is a set that's kind of, what's the word? It's a set, but it's not a traditional set where there's a designated space for everything. One set kind of services as everything. It's there on the computer looking at the New York Post, and they see that there was an unsolved murder at King's Club, which is the name of Tom's club. And that is where the story ends. And then there's this great finale song, because at the beginning of the show, we had this song called Murder Ballad that set the scene, set the mood, set the stage. And finale comes, and it's all of the actors, and they're out of character. Tom's alive, or the actor playing Tom is alive, and they're going, this is only a tale. It's just a play with actors and words. It's just a cautionary tale. It's something that our society loves, and it's all fun and games until it happens to you. So why do you think they add this song instead of just leaving it on the bam Unsolved Murder at King's Club. I mean, I kind of wish they had, but it also kind of says a lot about us. Like, we're, we're literally doing a podcast called Fatal Fans. It's like, as we're kind of obsessed with this kind of stuff, as long as it's not happening to us. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. That's very telling. Yeah, because I think the whole point of this, because the show is called Murder Ballad, it's hearkening back to this genre of music that was all about storytelling. And it was disturbing stories because death, is a part of life and where there is death there will be murder and it's something that our society has always been fascinated with there's something about the morbid there's a morbid fascination a morbid curiosity with murder and things like this so i think that the song kind of calls attention to that it's like hey we're all kind of sick and we like this stuff and it's all fun and games until it happens for real So I hope that you don't turn into a killer, and I hope no one kills you, and I hope that person next to you doesn't kill you. But it's all done in kind of a lively, fun, lighthearted way. So I think it kind of takes you out of that very heavy, whoa, I just watched a girl kill someone on stage, to going, oh, it's just a play. So you leave the theater with a smile. I think it's really interesting, because I think it really puts a little bow on the show. It, But you don't like it. No, I didn't like it at first, because I was like, oh, I just want it to leave me with this murder, and this bitch got away. And I I love that. I love, because that's me, because I'm a sick puppy, and I like that feeling of like, oh, they got me, gal. But I also really love how much attention is paid to the genre of murder ballads, because you set the stage, and then you bring people out of it by reminding them, hey, 
which is just a cautionary tale. Okay, so what do you think about this story? Do you think that it's an overdone type of story, this love triangle gone wrong thing? Yeah, I think we've seen that a lot, and I know that that's really popular to do. I am a little bit more okay with it because, to me, the love triangle, while it is the subject of the story, I don't feel like it's the main point of this it's it's about the fact that it's this murder ballad it's a it's it's a song it's a storytelling song with character for me it was one of those that as i was watching it i was like okay okay we see this story okay it's the same thing over and over again until we got to the end and it was like oh there we go yeah and now as i go back and i listen to it like i said all these new things keep popping out in these themes and these little nuggets of stuff that it's like oh, okay yeah there is a love triangle but whatever it's not as important as it seemed the first time i don't think i mean honestly yeah the, the um actual story is a little overdone but how many original stories are there it's kind of how you tell it if you tell it right if you tell it with like passion and you know if you have a good team behind you then you can really make you know you you can make anything interesting i mean who would have thought that you know a play about alexander hamilton would be interesting true one thing that i really like about this and i think we get this because we get the beautiful writing of women which tends to be a little bit more complex or maybe not more complex but it offers a different perspective no one's a hero no one's perfect in this show the women are complex characters they are not they're in the wrong sometimes they aren't in the wrong sometimes and the men aren't heroes. Michael is not Sarah's hero. She, he is the opposite of what she had. And that's what she thinks she needs. But ultimately, that isn't enough. Because I think at the end of the day, Sarah has to look inside herself and see what's going on. She needs to look to herself for answers instead of looking for someone else to fix her problems. So I like that everyone is a human, is complex, and isn't completely in the right or completely in the wrong. The only one that's completely, really not doing well is Tom. He has a lot more going wrong for him. Well, the, the narrator is, you know, murdered somebody, so she's kind of... Well, she is in the wrong, but what did she do to deserve that? Yeah, but... You know what I mean? She she wasn't in the wrong until she was in the wrong. That's true. You know, she took a very, very extreme route, but she hadn't done anything. Yeah, up to that point, yeah. no, she hadn't. She had done nothing to deserve that, and all of that had happened to her. And it's very, it's very humanizing because... It really makes you think, what would I do in that situation? Because she says, you don't know what you would do until someone makes you feel like you're invisible or makes you feel erased. How would you react to that? I mean, I don't think most people would murder, but it wouldn't feel good. You, you, It might surprise you how you'd react. So I appreciate the complexity in the writing and the character development. I, I just really like this musical. Like, I wish I had something more profound, but I think just um, taking the story and then having a genius composer write some incredible songs can make any story just pop. Yeah. This is a very simple story. It's original. Well, I said I didn't like the love triangle. It is an original take on a love triangle. And yeah, it's fresh. It's very intimate. It's a small cast. It can be done with basically no set. And I love that. I love the fact that it can just be this really intriguing, engaging story, and you really don't need much else. Do you think that's why it never got a Broadway run? Because it's too simple, it would get lost on one of those big stages? Well, maybe that, and I feel like the the setting that it was in, in New York, which could have the audience intertwined with the set, I feel like that lends to the show. And so, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily get that feeling, and also, it might not have been as big of a moneymaker, because... Look at the shows that get to Broadway. Not There aren't a lot of four-person musicals that get to Broadway. Most musicals have a lot of people and big sets, big numbers. So I think an off-Broadway was very appropriate for this, but I would love to see more productions regionally. There was a production in Argentina last year. Oh! No, I agree with Lacey. I think that, I mean, honestly, there are probably a few musicals on Broadway that should have kind of stayed off-Broadway or probably would have, I don't necessarily mean more successful, but just would have told the story better. A good example is when I saw Rent on Broadway and I was bored out of my mind. And then when I saw Rent off-Broadway and I bawled my eyes out. 
It's just some shows are meant for smaller venues and are meant for more intimate experiences. So I think Murder Ballad should be very proud of the run that it had. I think it is a great little nugget of musical theater history. And like I said, I want to see more productions. I would love to direct a production because I have this thing staged up in my head. I would love to be in a production. Well, let's talk. <laughs> just want to say a big thank you to our guest today. Thank you, Carl, for joining us on this discussion of Murder Ballad. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. So, Carl. Where can people find you? Do you have any upcoming productions? Right now, I do not. I just finished a production of Honk, and hopefully I work with y'all, too, on the 48-hour film festival coming up in November. Let's hope. That's going to be a lot of fun. It's science fiction-themed. Are you on Twitter? Instagram? Instagram? I'm on Twitter, Instagram. Instagram's Carl R. Gonzalez. Facebook, just type in Carl Gonzalez, and you can find me. I'll keep that updated with any productions and most likely my opinion on politics cool cool well thanks again for being on the show and maybe we'll see you again sometime soon thank you here is a clue for our next episode to commit suicide in the sen one doesn't need to undress thank you for listening to this episode of fatal Fems. to keep up with us please follow us on twitter at fatal underscore Fems. have a suggestion or comment for the show shoot us an email at fatalfemspodcast at gmail.com. While you're at it, make sure you subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, because if you didn't, we'll find you. Thanks for listening.